Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. My name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to just give you start with a word of warning. Uh, do not, and I cannot emphasize this enough, do not play Paul at Papa Shot, okay? <laughs> he will hustle you. I think he made 75 bucks last year at the big event. <laughs> Paul has a Papa Shot in his basement. I'm not lying, and he practices all year long, so don't do that. Uh, I had to say that. Hey, um, what keeps you up at night? What, what are the things happening in your life that cause you to turn them over and over again in your head? What are the, the thoughts and the ideas and the concerns that if anytime you slow down for a minute or two, they start to dominate your thinking? Now, I asked this question on my Facebook page this week and I was amazed at the number of answers I got. I asked, uh, what keeps you up at night? And of course, I got the silly answers that you'd expect, like my husband snoring or uh, my wife kicking me in the ribs and stealing my covers or the dog thinking he's a human and having to be on the same bed with me or uh, my cat existing, you know. Um, but apart from those, I got about 50 responses and I was amazed at the overwhelming response I received. For most people, what keeps them awake at night is worry. It's worry about our work, worry about our kids, worry about our relationship, worry about our health, worry about conflict in our families, uh, worry about our neighbors, our clients, our friends, our fellow students, uh, worry about what we didn't get done today or what we still know we have to get done tomorrow, uh, worry about what we already know we can't get done tomorrow and is going to seep into the next day. In fact, let's just be honest about this. How many of you ever get up and look right down at your bed and think, only 16 more hours and I'll be right back here. <laughs> Anybody? No, just me? Okay, a few of you. I do that too. Well, this morning we're going to talk about worry. And I think all of us experience, to some extent or another, we all experience some degree of worry. And it's really hard to tell what is a normal level of worry and what is excessive. Uh, for many of us, a busy time at work, a particularly stressful time in our family, a traumatic life event will cause us to worry more than we usually do. Uh, but then there are other people who deal with this consistently, uh, maybe even on a daily basis. And some of you are thinking, he's talking to me right now. I'm the worrier. And if, if, if that's you, if you're a worrier and you deal with a worry on a daily basis, I want you to know that you're not alone. Um, studies show that about 38% or over a third of the U.S. population struggles with worry on a daily pace, basis. One third of you. So in this room, 50 of you, you know, we could take one section and go, all of you guys are the worriers and you guys are good, right? That's probably not true, but it's about that many. And maybe you wish that wasn't you. Maybe you know you shouldn't worry. Maybe you've learned in your life that worry doesn't do any good. Maybe you've been around church enough that you know you're not supposed to worry. You're supposed to pray instead. And so whenever you tell people you worry, uh, you get nervous. And especially if they're Christians because you're afraid they're going to judge you. And so you don't even use the word worry anymore. Instead, you say, I've got this concern. Because concern is like Christian worry, right? And so we use that. You wish that wasn't you. If you wish that wasn't you, I am so glad that you're here today. I want you to know that um, I was writing this week with you in mind that I was praying for you this week as I was writing this message. And I want you to know that I, scripture gives us a way to lessen or eliminate worry in our lives. But before I, we get to that, I wanna address, there's one other group in the room too. And that's those of you who have clinical anxiety or generalized anxiety disorder. I, I want you to know that while 
Uh, anxiety often looks like run-of-the-mill worry. It's very different in the way that it comes on and the way that it's treated. And so while a third of the population deals with worry on a daily basis, a much smaller percentage, maybe 3% of the U.S. population deals with anxiety. And, and it's a disease. I mean, anxiety is a disease. It's, it's persistent. People who struggle with anxiety, it's a very real thing. These are not just delicate souls or snowflakes that need, just need to man up and get a life. Uh, this is a real crippling sickness that keeps people from living their full lives. It's not a choice that they're making. It, it's something that's happening to them. And if that's you, I just want to tell you our, burden, our, our, our uh, objective today is not to burden you and to make you think, boy, if I just had more faith, I guess I could get over this. That, that's not true. In fact, I want you to know that there's no shame in seeking therapy or, or talking to a doctor about medication to correct chemical imbalances in your brain. But I also want you to know that I have seen God's word work effectively in the battle against anxiety. And so what I've been praying for you this week, whether you struggle from worry or with crippling anxiety, that you would start, is that you would start to find victory in that battle today. Even today, through what we're going to talk about, what we're going to read together, that the Lord would start to do a work in your heart that would help you to eventually and inevitably overcome worry in your life. So before we get into the word, let's just pray together, shall we? God, um, Heavenly Father, loving Father, my words are not going to do anything today, but your word can. We know for a fact that your word changes lives, that your spirit and its presence in this room can heal us even now. So Lord, I just pray that your spirit would pervade this morning. Would you make your presence known? Would we feel your presence in this room. And for those of us who deal with worry or anxiety, um, whether it's on a regular basis or just every once in a while, God, would we know your presence? Would you reveal yourselves to us today? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Philippians chapter four. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have a phone with a Bible app on it, uh, there's one of these on the floor around you, this blue Bible. It's page uh, 820 in this Bible. And we're finishing up our series today called Citizens. That title comes from a passage in Philippians, Philippians 3.20, that says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so over the last four weeks, what we've been doing is kind of reading and studying through the book of Philippians together and talking about what it means to be a citizen of heaven. What are the rights and privileges and responsibilities of what it means to be someone who comes from heaven and will eventually end up there. Well, week one, uh, Jerry talked about as a citizen of heaven that we're ambassadors. It was built around the idea that as citizens of heaven, it's our responsibility to bring Jesus to every person we meet and into every situation we face. And then uh, in week two, we studied Philippians chapter two and we talked about the dangers of pride and the responsibility that we have as citizens of heaven to be humble, that, that we should... Uh, view Jesus as our model for how to be humble, that even though he was in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing and took on the likeness of a servant. And, and then last week, we talked about uh, as citizens of heaven that we have the privilege of putting our hope in Christ. And so that everything else in this world, whether it's money or a career or people or a relationship, everything's gonna let us down. There, there is nothing that has the ability to satisfy us. But when our hope is in Jesus, we can rejoice in the Lord always. And so that brings us today to this topic of worry. 
And I want to show you a promise that's made in this passage. And it's a promise from God to you through the Apostle Paul who wrote this, this, what we call a book. It's a letter to the church in Philippi. And if you struggle with worry, this is a great promise. It's found in Philippians 4 verse 7. And it says this, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And doesn't that sound awesome? I mean, if you're a worrier, wouldn't you love to have the peace of God guarding your heart and your mind? I mean, not just any peace, but the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. Have you ever known someone who is going through a very difficult time in their life and they seem so calm about it? And when you ask them why, they don't really know why. You know, when you, like, how are you so peaceful about this. I don't know. I'm just not worried about it. That's the peace of God. And it, it, they don't know because it transcends understanding. We don't understand like when we have it, we don't understand why we're feeling it. We just know that we have it, right? So that's the peace of God. How would you like to have that guarding your mind and your hearts? Like just think if every thought that came in your mind had to pass through the peace of God before it was allowed in. The peace of God standing there as a soldier with a, with a sword, Okay. And there's a thought getting ready to come into your mind. And the peace of God goes, who goes there? Are you allowed in or not allowed in? And if it's not allowed in, the peace of God just swats it away, right? That's what he's talking about, the peace of God. Every feeling that's going to come into your heart has to go through this filter that is the peace of God that transcends all understanding. That's the promise, right? That's the promise that we have in God, in Christ. And in fact, you may even have that verse, um, you know, written on your wall somewhere or inscribed on your favorite coffee cup. But there's a problem. There's a problem with this verse. And it, it looks like a little problem, but it's actually a really big problem. And, and it's the first word in this verse, that little three letters, A, N, D, and. Because the and in front of that verse means there's something before it that we need to pay attention to. The and is an indicator for us that the peace of God is not actually the point of this passage. It's not the beginning of this passage. Rather, it's the end. It's a result of something. And the something that it's a result of is what we need to pay attention to. So I just want to take a few minutes because what we're going to see as we read through this, the entirety of this passage is that that peace of God, the one that we'd all like to get, the peace of God which transcends all understanding is actually rooted in four things that the Apostle Paul is going to share with us. And so if you're a worrier, you may want to take this down. You may want to take notes. I think this will be helpful for you. There's four kind of B statements that Paul's going to lay out for us in this few verses. So Philippians 4, 4, let's jump, jump back just a few verses. Philippians 4, 4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. And he says, I say it again because he said it in the sentence before that. <clears throat> but he also says it in Philippians 3, 1. He also says it in Philippians 1. He reminds us there's, uh, there's time to rejoice in the Lord. And how many of you know that it's really hard to worry and rejoice at the same time. <laughs> you may have felt that even when you walked in the room this morning. Maybe you walked in a few minutes late and people are singing, I raise a hallelujah. And you're like, I, you know, this is a little early. I don't know that I'm ready for that yet. Like I got in a fight in the car on the way here. Or uh, I just had a toddler scream at me as I dropped her off in Gin Kids. I don't know that I'm ready to raise a hallelujah. Or I'm still thinking about that guy who cut me off in traffic with the church sticker on the back of his car. <laughs> By the way, um, if you have a Genesis church sticker on your car, please drive it. 
nice, safely and correctly, okay? <laughs> I'm always cautious about that when I'm driving. I think, oh, I don't want, if I just cut somebody off, I don't want them to see the back of my car. Uh, or maybe, you know, you're worried, you're thinking about the meeting that your boss called for tomorrow and you have no idea what it's about. And so you're worried about that and you're having a hard time rejoicing. You're not going to raise a hallelujah because I, I, I'm worried about that thing, you know, that's going on. I, that might be why Paul gives us this command to rejoice because he understands, he knows. It's hard to rejoice and worry at the same time. And so I think that's the first step. That's the, the, the first B statement is to be joyful. Be joyful. That's the kind of the first uh, part that the peace of God is grounded in. Now, in the battle against worry, we begin with rejoicing. What does that look like? It's just praising God for all his goodness. I mean, think of all the ways that he's come through for you in the past. Uh, and, and then tell him about it. Rejoice in it. You know, if, if you're a worrier by nature, or even if you struggle with anxiety, sometimes it's hard to remember where God has been faithful in the past. And so if that's you, and if you have a hard time thinking about where God's been faithful, let me remind you. First Peter 2 says he called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Uh, Psalm 32 says he forgave all of our guilt and all of our sin. Hebrews 9 says he did it with the blood of his own son, that he sent his own son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. First Thessalonians 4 reminds us that he is coming again. And Revelation 21 reminds us that he, we will spend eternity with him in heaven. If you are in Christ, these are just a few of the things that you have to rejoice about. And Paul shows us here that having the peace of God begins with being joyful. And then he goes on, verse five. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And that word in there that's translated as gentleness is the Greek word epiikes. Uh, epiikes uh, is usually translated gentle or moderate. It can also be patient or reasonable. And so there's this idea that all of us as citizens of heaven are supposed to be gentle. There should be an air of gentleness about it, around us. There should, we should be gentle in the way we deal with people. We should be charitable in the way we treat people. We should be gentle with people who are different from us. We should be gentle with our waiters and waitresses at lunch today, please. We should be gentle with our kids' teachers and coaches and referees and with our kids, <laughs> that we should be gentle, that we should treat people differently than non-citizens do. But that word gentle can be taken another way as well. As I said, epi case can be translated as reasonable. In fact, the ESV, the English Standard Version, translate that verse this way. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. And I think that's a helpful translation because it forces us to ask the question, am I being reasonable? Now, I want to warn you, if you're in a conflict with your spouse or significant other and you say, you're not being reasonable right now, that's not going to help. Even if they're not being reasonable, that is not a helpful statement. But if you're in conflict internally and you ask yourself, am I being reasonable right now? That might be a helpful question to ask because reason forces us to use our brain and the brain and logic is a really important part. It's a really important tool in fighting worry. In fact, if uh, any cognitive behavioral therapist would tell you, uh, if they're counseling someone with worry, they'll immediately ask, what are you thinking about? What's causing you to worry about these things? What are the triggers? What are the things that you thought about that got you to this place? It forces us to remember that there's more at hand with our worries than what's happening at the present time. 
that we have to think about our fears and worries. Have I had this fear before? If I did, what happened? Is that a reasonable fear or not a reasonable fear? Or are we worrying about something that'll probably never happen again? In fact, um, I've got a little worry test that I've kind of developed from reading this passage over the years that I thought might be helpful for you. It may not be helpful for you, but it's free. And I know you get what you pay for. But I'm going to give you my five-second reasonableness test to worry. So here's the questions. Uh, number one, is this a reasonable fear? If you ask yourself that question, you realize it's not reasonable, don't worry about it. If it's not going to happen, it's never going to happen. Or I've worried about it 17 times and it's never happened in the past, don't worry about it. It's not reasonable. But if it is reasonable, then you go to the second question. Can I do anything about it? That's a question we sometimes skip over. Can I do anything about it? If the answer is yes, don't worry about it. Do something about it. Sorry, that's the, that's the fixer in me. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> do something about it. If, if, I, if it's a reasonable fear and I can't do anything about it, then the third question is this. Is God in control of it? And if you answer that question yes, then you don't need to worry about it. That's how reason can work. So step, step two, the second uh, thing that the peace of God is grounded in is be reasonable, be reasonable. And then Paul just takes a moment to remind his readers, in case you've forgotten, he says, the Lord is near. Right? He, he reminds us that Jesus said, your heavenly father knows what you need. Don't forget, he's in control. He's in control, so you can be reasonable. And then he goes on, verse six. Verse six says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And if you talk to somebody who worries, this is a verse that they usually know. I know I'm not supposed to worry. I'm just supposed to pray about everything. And that's great and that's helpful and it works, but that's not all, right? So we've already gone through two verses to get to this point. And this one has a lot more than prayer in it, but I do wanna stop at prayer. Paul says, don't be anxious. Don't worry about anything. Now that sounds simple, but in practice, it's not always easy. But just because it's not easy doesn't mean it's not possible. In fact, if you read that and you think, yeah, but Paul doesn't know my situation. Like if Paul were in my shoes, he wouldn't tell me not to worry because I got a lot to worry about right now. Well, in case you're thinking that, if that's you, let's just review, shall we, what Paul's situation is. Uh, he's in prison in Rome. You know, Paul always wanted to go to Rome. Uh, if you read through his letters, that's kind of a theme in his letters, but he didn't want to go as a prisoner. He wanted to go as a missionary. He's in prison and people are telling lies about him. And other people have taken credit for his work. And we think this is why he talks about in chapter one, the gospel being preached out of selfish motives because other people are taking Paul's words and preaching them for themselves. They're, they're taking his stuff. That he's unable to be with the people he loves. Like he's got this church that he's worried about, like this church in Philippi that he's worried about. And he's writing to them and, and they're being taught false things, false gospel. And Paul loves them and wants to protect them, but he can't be there to protect them because he's in prison. So the point is that Paul's in some pretty discouraging circumstances. His ministry in many ways appears to be in decline. He's losing popularity. His reputation is being trashed. Some of his work is being undone and he is in prison, unable to do anything about it. And with those circumstances, Paul says, hey, don't worry about anything. Don't worry, but instead pray. Petition God. He reminds us that most of the things we worry about are out of our control, but they're not out of God's. I'm going to say that again. Most of the things we worry about are out of our control, 
but they're not out of God's. And so that's the third thing the peace of ground is grounded in. Peace of God is grounded in is to be prayerful. Be prayerful. We serve a mighty God. And he is a good father. And dads know what you need. Like dads know what you need. That's why my girls call me when they want ice cream. Or when they want Chick-fil-A. You think it's because I'm the softy. That's not it. It's because moms are great. But moms don't understand that that kind of stuff's a need. Ice cream is a need. It's a necessity. Like Chick-fil-A is a necessity. You've got to have that, right? And so when my girls need that, they call me because dads know what you want. We know, we understand what you want and what you need and your good heavenly father loves you dearly. And he longs to hear the desires of your heart. He wants to know what you're thinking about and what you're worried about and what you're anxious about and what you want and what you need. And not because he doesn't already know because God knows what you need before the first word ever leaves your lips but he wants you to tell him anyway because he wants a relationship with you. And relationships are grounded in conversation, right? They're fueled by conversation. So don't be afraid to ask, be prayerful. But then just to make sure we get it right, Paul adds this one other detail. He says, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, that that there should be a thankful spirit to your prayers and petitions. Thank God for his goodness. You know, thank him for his provision. Don't be so overcome by the current situation that you forget all there is to be thankful for. All the time over your life where he's come through. It's a key part of the process of overcoming worry. And it's the fourth thing the peace of God is grounded in is to be thankful, be thankful. So then after all of that, then we hit verse seven and and see all the groundwork that has to happen there. See what what has to be done. And after that, we hit verse seven, Philippians 4, seven. And there's that word again, and. Meaning, after all this stuff has taken place, right? Once this has all happened, be grounded in these four things. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So that's it. That's the idea for today. The peace of God is grounded in four things. Be joyful, be reasonable, be prayerful, be thankful. Now we could stop right there and you'd probably have what you need. You could go on your way. You've gotten your money's worth from the sermon today and uh, you could walk away satisfied. But I still got time left. And so I want to show you a couple of things uh, that Paul wants us to know. Because two things happen when we start worrying. Okay, well, actually lots of things happen when we stop, stop worrying, but lots of good things. But two things that could concern us happen when we stop worrying. One is that we have lots of time on our hands. If you are consumed with worry, if you spend lots of time worrying and you're able to drive that worry out, you have a lot of time to think about other things, right? And the second thing is we have lots of space in our mind when we stop worrying, right? That worry consumes a lot of space in our brain. And so when you eliminate worry from your head, you're going to have lots of empty space in your head. And some of us are going to have more empty space than others, There's a story, though, that Jesus told that reminded me of this this week. And you may think on the surface it's not really related, but I think I can catch you up at the end. So Jesus tells this story in Luke 11. He talks about casting an impure spirit out of somebody. 
And he says that when you cast an impure spirit out of somebody, it'll go around looking for a new home. And if it doesn't find any, it will go back to the person you cast it out from. And then he says this. He says, they'll, he'll see the house has been swept and put away clean. And so he invites seven of his friends to come live with him. That's scary, first of all. But he says, basically, if there's nothing there to replace those impure spirits, that they'll come back. Now, I want to tell you, our thoughts and our worries are much the same. Like if we're not super intentional with our thoughts and with that time and space that they leave behind, I just want to remind you that you have a very real enemy who would love to fill that time and space in your brain with guilt and shame and worry and fear and doubt. And that's not what we want to happen. Leave your mind empty and it will get filled up. So fortunately for us, Paul goes on to tell us what to do with this empty space and all this time that's created when we eliminate worry from our lives. Here's what he says in verse eight. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, this isn't some power of positive thinking message by Paul. Or this isn't about some like fake rule of attraction thing that if you only think good thoughts, you only have good things happen in your life. Uh, that's not what he's trying to say here. Paul is reminding us to condition our mind to look for, to search for good things. Things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely, etc. He's reminding us that I think that the things that we think about and worry about can be shaped by what we put in our heads to begin with. And I don't need to tell you that's true. You already know that that's true because you know that the more you watch HGTV, the more you get discontent with the house you already have. Right? Uh, the more you're around friends that are buying new cars, the more you think you need, no, deserve a new car. The more you're around people who cuss, the more likely you are to develop a potty mouth yourself. Uh, the more you watch sex on TV or in movies or in the internet, the more, you'll obsess, more obsessed you'll become with it in real life. If you watch a lot of scary movies at night, you'll become convinced that every thump you hear in the middle of the night is some masked chainsaw killer behind your bed who's ready to jump out and get you next, right? And if you spend a lot of time on social media, Comparing yourself to others, you end up becoming discontent with who you are or what you look like or what you have to wear or what you own. On the other hand, on the other hand when you think thoughts that are pure and noble and lovely and praiseworthy, well, you start to notice those things in the real world. You know, it's like, if you don't believe me, think back to the last time you bought a car, all right? You can buy a car that you never, ever, ever notice. And then all of a sudden after you buy one, do you notice they're everywhere? Like I bought my wife a, a white Dodge Caravan last fall. And I'd never noticed a white Dodge Caravan in my life. And the next week I saw 50 of them, right? You know how that works? Because it's in your mind. It's implanted in your brain. You're, you're, you're uh, inclined to look for those kind of things. So Paul says it's really important to think about what you think about, to make it a practice. In fact, that's really important to spend a minute on. That we have to make this a practice, it would be really cool if the absence of worry or the absence of fear was just something that automatically happened to us when we started to follow Jesus, wouldn't it? Like, okay, like it's an app 
and you just get these extra add-ons for free. Like, okay, here's the Jesus app. If you accept his forgiveness, that's like the terms and conditions, right? I accept his forgiveness. I'm going to download his forgiveness for my sins into my life. I'm going to make him the center of my life. And then all of a sudden, hey, you know what? Here's, here's some things that go with it. Worry goes away. We become more generous. Our relationships improve. That's all included. It doesn't work like that, does it? We have to practice it. In fact, look what Paul says about contentment just a couple of verses later in verse 12. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And he, there's, there's a word that just jumped out to me this week as I was preparing this message. I read through that verse and I went, oh my goodness, why haven't I noticed this before? And it's the word learned. I have learned the secret of being content. Paul, the apostle who planted more churches in the ancient world than anybody else, who is somebody that we look up, up to as a, just like a pillar of our faith, who was this incredible Christian who had this great conversion moment. You think, you know, as soon as that happened and he encountered Jesus in real life on the, uh, on the uh, road to Damascus and he was converted right away and he became an uh, intense follower of Jesus, he had to learn how to be content. There was a practice there. There was something he had to do. He had to practice it over and over and over again. It didn't come naturally. Friends, if you constantly struggle with worry or fear or discontentment, I hope this will be an encouragement to you today. It's something we have to learn. So as we close this series, um, we've looked at some of the privileges and responsibilities of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. That when we become followers of Jesus, we become citizens. And there are lots of those rights and responsibilities and privileges. But I want you to realize that um, when, when you become a follower of Jesus and you uh, receive his Holy Spirit to live inside of you, you don't just become a citizen of a place. You become a part of a family. You become a part of a family with brothers and sisters who have the same father, a heavenly father, a good father who loves you and who cares about what's going on in your life and wants to guard your heart and mind from these attacks from the enemy. In fact, the last promise that we're going to look at today from Philippians 4 uh, is from verse 9. It's the promise that Paul ties to these things we think about. He says that we should fix our mind on the things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy. And then he tells us this in verse 9. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Isn't that so cool? In, in verse 7, we're promised the peace of God. And here in verse nine, we promise the God of peace. Like that's your dad. That's your heavenly father who he's talking about. The God of peace who loves you and cares for you. He wants to set you free from fear and worry and anxiety. And so just to summarize, as citizens of heaven, we have access to both the peace of God, which guards our hearts and minds, and the God of peace who promises to be with us always. The God of peace, Elohe HaShalom. That's the Hebrew for the God of peace, Elohe HaShalom. And if you recognize that word in there, Shalom, you probably know that the kind of peace that God promises is not just the absence of conflict, right? It's not just the absence of trouble or the absence of noise. It's, it's a wholeness. It's a completeness. It's a, a put togetherness that could only come from the God of peace, God the Father who entered into a broken world to put it back together again.
The God of peace offers a wholeness that we can't find anywhere else. And it's so much greater than our worries. It's so much greater than our anxiety. It's so much greater than our fear, but it only comes from him. Elohe HaShalom, the God of peace. Cast your worries on him. Cast your cares on him. Cast your fears and your anxieties on him. He cares for you. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful for both of those promises. That in those times when we're worried and anxious about something, that, that we can be joyful, be reasonable, be prayerful, be thankful. And you promise the peace of God that passes all understanding. And then Lord, in those intense moments where we can't do it on our own, you promise to be a God of peace who is always with us. Lord, we need both of those in our lives. We need you, Elohe HaShalom. We need you, the God of peace. And we need your peace of the peace of God to guard our hearts and our minds. Lord, we rejoice today that you made those promises to us. For those of us who deal with worry and fear, Lord, um, we need your spirit to reside in us, to overpower those, to take them away. Help us to remember in those moments where we have a tendency to be overcome with fear, to invite you in, to realize and recognize your presence even more and to be thankful and prayerful and reasonable and joyful. And we'll give you all the glory for that, Lord. When we're healed, we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.